Jen. It's happening. We're all in our houses. We've been prepping our whole lives for this. I know. God, I know. It's really stressing me out, but also I have so many books to read. So it's so, here's the thing. It's like, it's so immensely stressful that like you can't, I'm just, I've resorted to gallows humor every, like everywhere. Like my, I walked the dog yesterday. And so New York is where are we at in New York? Where every day it changes. <laughs> but as of today, um, bars and restaurants can only do takeout. Um, and like everything is closed. Everything is closed. And I um, was walking on the street. I was walking the dog yesterday. And this man <laughs> was walking toward me. And he was like halfway up the block. And then he just immediately crossed <laughs> to walk in the street. And I was like, you know... I don't think that man is afraid of dogs. <laughs> I think that man is social distancing. And, like, I'm for it. Thank you, dude. Great work, everyone. I had to run out and pick up something yesterday at the mailbox place. Did you wear love- latex gloves? Well, it was not the post office. So these really... <laughs> I would not have gone into the post office. Because it's different. <laughs> no, well, it is. It's one guy, and he... Like, sends me an email, and he's like, Jen, you have three packages from Kirkus. And I, like, walk in, and he hands them to me, and I leave. That's it. That's nice. It's not a big deal. It is nice. So as long as that guy stays healthy, everybody's fine. I'm just convinced that everybody has it. It's true. It's true. My, I've, I said to Jen this morning, my, I have a very, very good, my, like, one of my best friends from high school is this, like, hotshot public health economist. And she did this Twitter thread today that was basically, like, the flu that everybody thinks that they have been getting over the last two months seems aw- it is awful plausible that everybody just got COVID. Yeah. Um, and like she shows these, it's a very, I sent it to Jen. I was like, it's a very compelling, like statistical argument for yeah. this flu that I had too, that laid me up for 10 days. Yeah. Um, and laid my daughter out for several days too. Like maybe was it. So, I don't know. We should all still be safe, though. Of course. If Kate Claiborne were here, she would be like, don't tell people they've already had it. (laughs) I mean, come on. We're two dumbos talking about romance novels. Please do not take anything we say as, like, (laughs) (laughs) armchair doctoring over here. No, but I will say this. Here's my public health advice. I do have some because I have made a living as a statistician, as a data data analysis analyst. What what have I done? <laughs> it's early. It's early, you guys. Um and I've you know, and I worked obviously in not medical data, but I will say this, there are a whole lot of armchair statisticians on Twitter. Oh yeah. And I am seeing look, medical data is not my specialty. Education data is my specialty. But like I know enough about data analysis to be able to tell you that a lot of these hot takes are garbage. Like they are an utter misrepresentation of what the data say. And so please, 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 you guys, when you're reading Twitter, because we're all just staring at what Kate refers to as a hell rectangle all (laughs) the time now, and like take deep breaths, check your sources. If like my favorite tweet so far of, of, coronavirus has been the New York City Metropolitan Transit Authority, which is the subway, Mm -hmm. um, tweeting, we are not closing. And when we do, you'll hear it from us. And it won't be a screenshot of a text from your cousin. (laughs) 
Right? New York has no chill right now. New York is like, shut it down. That's exactly right. It's scary, though. It's so hard because, like, and look, our texts are the same. Like, we're like, what about this book? What about this book? And then it's like, wait, did you see this, like, graph? Did you see so-and-so on Twitter talking about Iran? And you're like, we don't know. None of us know. Epidemiologists are going to be working on this for a generation to figure out what happened. Absolutely. Um, anyway, <sighs> wash your hands. Don't, don't touch your face. face holes. I know. <laughs> I, and stay home. You know, it was funny because my son, I did make him watch the New York Times, um, had a really good, like these little dots. The post. Yeah. Oh, pardon me. It was the Washington Post. It was the Washington <laughs> Post. The New York Times, every headline's about the markets. And I'm like, listen, fuck you. But the Washington Post, but I, cause he was kind of like, I'm young and you know, and I don't think he meant it to be sound that shitty. He's 16. Well, his brain isn't developed. It's fine. Sure. He sometimes sounds shitty. And I was like, look, I get that you want to go out and be with your friends, but like, let's watch this. And he was like, no. And I was like, we're not going anywhere. You're like, you have to watch this with me. Because I yeah. was like, and he was like, oh, fine. But I was like, yeah, like, you're doing it for other people. Yeah. You're doing yeah. it for other people. I mean, that's the thing. The thing that really broke New York where over the weekend, it was so beautiful here. And, I mean, weirdly, Eric needed stitches. Like, of all the times, man, mm-hmm. to need to go to a walk-in clinic to get stitches, maybe, like, pandemic is a time when we could all be a little, don't drop stuff People, like, be a little careful doing dishes is my lesson, too. Yeah. So, anyway, I drove him to the clinic to get stitches, and it was so beautiful out, and just New York was packed. It was like, we had been inside for days, and, I mean, just thousands of people between our house and, you know, six blocks from here, just packed, 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 like sardines. Yeah. So... It's just not worth it. It's I know I my favorite um my favorite sort of smart person is the guy, you know, the head of the CDC, the the guy who won't touch Donald Trump's microphone. <laughs> I, it's not Faludi. That's a, he she's a feminist activist. <laughs> that that guy, the guy, you all know. Yeah. Um I like that he's like, look, if it sounds like you're overreacting, you're probably just in the right zone. Yeah. And so that's where we are, overreacting in our house. Oh, but that's true. we read Devil's Bride. Oh, God, yes, we oh, did. Oh, wait. Welcome, everyone, to Faded Mates. <laughs> Eric's like seven minutes in. This is a new low for you, too. I'm Sarah McLean. I am an armchair epidemiologist. <laughs> I'm Jennifer Procott. My husband still has to go to work. Uh, worst. I know. And he works at a hospital, so yay. But you know what? He is not a doctor or a healthcare worker, and that's the one thing I do want to say before we get to talking about Devil's Bride is mm-hmm. I, I just want to say, like, to all those people who are, like, literally on the front lines of this, thank you. Yeah. And I'm sure it's really scary if you or someone in your family works in hospitals and... Yes. Thank you. Hey, um, we should do shout outs and stuff to our listeners who are healthcare workers and also teachers. I want to shout out teachers who are like still going to school in districts that are not closed. Like, yeah. you guys, I get it. I live in New York City. We just closed the schools, uh, you know, on this week, the week that this is coming out. We closed yeah. the schools finally. Um, but like my kids' teachers were showing up and... 
and that is we need you I I if anything this has proven to me just like how valuable healthcare workers like aides we're not just doctors not just nurses like all down the line and teachers and teachers aides and people who are working with children and families in need social workers Adriana Herrera is like busting her ass still yeah um so you know we're thinking of you we want to give you shouts out a shout outs um call us and tell us about your time and tell us what your favorite book is I don't know. Jen and I will figure out some way to give you love on on the on the pod. Yeah. The number that number is 646-450-3766. Anyway, but let's do let's talk about um, <laughs> let's talk about this bonkers book we read. Oh god. Well, I picked it even though you you were like, "Yes, it wasn't like Obviously. A- obviously. I this book came out in 1998 Devil's Pride. I don't think I read it. I went back and actually looked at my Amazon account, which I want to tell you right now. My Amazon account is it's like a time capsule, right? Of like what I was reading and when. And I really Wait, you didn't read this when it came out? I read it in 2000. So oh, close right. enough. Yeah. I had no idea by the way that it is so recent. I think of this book, I mean, I guess it's not that recent anymore. It's 22 years old, Sarah. But, I mean, the it feels like it should be in the canon. I agree. I think it should be. It should be in that 93, 94. Like, I feel like it should be right there with, like, Derek Craven and, you know, Susan Elizabeth Phillips. And, and we're going to talk about that because I actually think it's, like, kind of does some interesting bridging to mm-hmm. kind of where we are now with, like, the 30-page sex scenes. Okay, but here's the part that's really interesting. I read this book actually in March of 2001 and I went back and, you know, you can look at like what you ordered with it because, of course, this was pre-Kindle, right? I ordered four romances at the same time, three of which I swear to God, if you put them in front of me, I'd be like, I never fucking read that book. (laughs) And I'm fascinated. I am like actually really fascinated. And I think this is why we're doing this. Like, Okay, I read four books at the same time. I ordered these four books. The other three literally have made, and these are big names. It's a Jane Ann Krenz, Suzanne Forrester, and Stewart. These are literally books. I'm looking at them. I'm like, I've never fucking read that book. So what is it about this book that made it instead be the one that not only did I remember, but I've read and reread a bunch of times. Now, I'm a scene rereader. I haven't actually reread the whole thing in a long time, so it's really interesting to do that again for the pod. But I I just thought that was, like, really interesting that I ordered it with these other books. So 2001 would have basically been when it came out, you know. <laughs> well, it's three years after it when it came yeah, out. But, but yeah, but don't you feel like there was less immediacy pre-Kindle? I don't know. And here's why. I read this book when it came out. I was in college, and I was a, a voracious romance reader. Romance novels got me through, like, reading, I don't know, a lot of other kind of old white dudes and I went to Smith so like I also read not old white dudes but it felt like I was reading a lot of white dudes right like it got me through a lot of like government reading I we had a mall nearby and there was a Walden books there and like so I'm certain that and I was already reading Lawrence because this is not her debut okay Stephanie Lawrence had been writing her first book I want to say is Captain Jack's Woman do you ever read that 
I think so, but God, not. It's like, it's like, yeah. Priority Stephanie sure. Lawrence book. I mean, the interesting thing about Stephanie is she writes so fast. She was writing fast mm. before writing fast was cool. Like, yeah. <laughs> and so she was putting out two books a year just because, like, that's what she does. She lives in Australia. I don't know. She's down there writing her books. Like, she's up the opposite hours of everyone else <laughs> and writing her books down there. So I feel like there is something really um, – she's been writing really fast. It was, I think I was already a Stephanie Lawrence fan mm-hmm. because she has a real taste for the sort of bonkers historicals that I loved – But she is, as you were saying, like, she's sort of bringing the genre forward in a really interesting way. This book, I don't know the last time I read this book, but I was so delighted. Okay, when we talk about romance novels, we talk, when my editor, for example, when you sit her down, like, when she does panels, and I think I may have told this story before, but she talks a lot about romance basically being three things, right? It's character, it's conflict, and it's authorial voice. So you can teach a writer how to build a character and how to, like, structure a character and, like, add nuance to a character. It's hard, but, like, you can teach it. Conflict, you can teach, like... I wish more people would think about conflict. But, I mean, I, this is my drum. Like Anybody who's ever seen me do my two-hour conflict masterclass, like, during quarantine, I should just do it and we should put it up on the Fate of Mates site because, yeah. like, I'm so obsessed with conflict and thinking about how we layer it and how it, like, how plot and conflict interact and what is plot versus what is conflict, et cetera. We're going to talk about it, I think, in this book. Let's sing in that beautiful choir together because <laughs> I have a lot of feelings about it, too. But... So you can teach conflict, too. I really, like, I actually think conflict is probably the easiest thing of those three things to teach. You cannot teach voice. Voice is just how an author feels. And my editor, Carrie Farron, says all the time that if she, if you gave her one paragraph of a book that she'd never seen written by any one of her authors, she would be able to tell you who wrote it. And I think that there is something very true about that. And it's something that we haven't talked about this season very much, I don't think. But, like, it is really relevant to this season and this idea of, like, the books that blooded us. J.R. Ward's books sound like J.R. Ward. Susan Elizabeth Phillips' books sound like Susan. But, like, I don't know that there's anybody who sounds as much like herself as Stephanie Lawrence. As Stephanie Lawrence. Yeah, and I really want to, it doesn't have to be the first thing we talk about, but going back to this book, and like Kate and I had a side conversation about it, because I feel like kind of the third rail of talking about romance is talking about writing. Like how to write a sentence? Yeah, maybe it's on my mind, because it was like a year ago that I read the Rita books, and a lot of them, and because I also feel like when you say something is like good writing or bad writing, that's like such bullshit, right? Like it's so coded into so many things about like society and all the things we right. do. But Stephanie Lawrence writes meaty, complicated sentences, and I like it, and I want more of it. Yeah, it's interesting because I think there are other writers who I'm not going to t- obviously like name who write meaty, complicated sentences who I don't like. I yeah. feel like they're too much. And so we can talk more about it once we sort of talk about, because I think it does a lot of character work. And that's always where, like, 
right? That's always where the money is for yeah. me is like, are, is what you're doing driving me to believing these characters and what they're doing? And the problem with like not having enough plot or not having enough conflict or not having interesting meaty sentences is what I'm left with is like an internal monologue that as with one of the Rita books, like essentially is like written for like a fourth grader in terms of its like level, right? Like I want Mm -hmm. this, I want that, I want this. And those books I find to be very like just, you know, they're not really fun to read. I just feel like there's something um, interesting complex sentences lead me to think that characters have interesting complex inner lives. And that to me is appealing. Yeah. I mean, there's something going on here, and this is really interesting because we've talked about – so you and I both set Lord of Scoundrels sort of almost apart from all other books, mm-hmm. right? Like, And it, if you think about Lord of Scoundrels, which is an empirically beautifully written book, yes, in or out of romance, like however you want to take it, it's a magnificent text. Right. Stephanie Lawrence, Devil's Bride is an empirically well-done romance. Oh, yeah. Like it's one uh, for me. And I don't want to I don't want to use up and down because I actually don't. I'm I never want anybody to feel like I'm like I'm valuing Lord of Scoundrels. I do value Lord of Scoundrels over most books, but that's a different thing. But like in this particular case, what Stephanie is angling for is not Lord of Scoundrels. Oh, no, not at all. I don't know. I don't know if Loretta was hunting the big game of crossing over into literary like fiction or like into fiction. Stephanie is not doing that. Stephanie's writing you a romance novel, like beat for beat. And it's just really deliciously written. Oh, yeah, absolutely. But like, also, in a sense, reading back like 22 years later feels like a historical text. Oh, God, yes. The books do not read this way. I mean, no. Like, if you that think about the best of historical romance now, whoever the, that may be, it doesn't read, read the same way. No, absolutely. Like and Stephanie Lawrence. That was sort of my experience, especially of like rereading the whole thing entirely. Right. So I'm a, mm-hmm. a, a scene rereader. There's like scenes I really like I've reread. Yes. But to like sit down and read this thing, like I was like, oh God, this just feels really different. And I'm not going to use the word dated because I don't think that that's what it is. It just feels different. Like it was written in a different time. It was written in a different era. And that's the part I think that romance, we've talked about this a lot, romance, the styles of romance, the way that books are written, the tropes that are popular, the kinds of characters we get, like all of that stuff. We talk about iteration a lot because it is iterating and it's doing it really fast. Mm-hmm. I, I like part of me feels like, you know, a generation of like mainstream fiction is just longer. I feel like a romance generation is like seven year. years. <laughs> we can do some of that on the back end. I want to talk yeah. about... um how do you I, say her name? I'm like Honoria, like Honoria Prudence, Honoria. I kind of dropped the H, right? I've always dropped the H. And then in this reread, there's the sure. moment where his mother, who is French, calls her Honoria. Yeah. Honoria. And that's how I've always pronounced it in my head. So who even knows? Okay. I don't know. Tweet us. I don't, I certainly don't like Honoria. Yeah, I don't either. I'm like Honoria, right? It's not <laughs> but good. maybe that's some British. I don't know. I'll ask my mom. Oh, there you go. Good call. I mean, the names. All right, can we start with names since we're since we're dead? The names are 
nonsense. Well, but don't, okay, I do remember, though, Amanda Quick. When Amanda Quick brought back the, that whole, like, ravish, that whole yeah, group, yeah. Oh, I remember oh. feeling, like, really purposefully, like, she was really like, look, I'm going to take these old-fashioned names and give them to sex spots, and we're going to see what happens. I don't mean the, I don't mean the lady names. Like, I love a crazy lady name. I well, do. Sylvester is. But <laughs> Sylvester is a nonsense name, and so are all, like, and then, of course, we had to get into the nicknames, <laughs> which are. The page, wait, I marked it because I was like, I we got to talk about, I think it's page 71. Hang wait, on. Wait, you know what? Now is the time for you to tell your really great story about how. Oh my God. Okay. So you guys, like the first time I heard you call him Sinister, I was like, wait, it's Sinister, right? <laughs> well, it is Sinister, isn't it? Of course it is. It is, right? But it's also clearly, okay. you know. So you guys, I'm not that smart. Ultimately, here's the part where we pull back the curtain and you see, you've been listening to us for almost two years and I'm actually not that smart. So, okay. I was obsessed with this series, obsessed with it. So any, once I read Devil's Bride, I then read every Sinster book that came out the, like the week it came out. Like I was the person who had the little slip of paper and took myself to, you know, B. Dalton or whatever. It wasn't B. Dalton, but like to Borders. And then, and then, like, after Borders closed, RIP, like, Amazon just had a standing Stephanie Lawrence order for me, right? Like, she, I read all of these books. So one, and I would talk about them. Like, <laughs> you, we've all been there, right? I would talk about them like I knew these people. Of course. And at some <sighs> point, I was sitting, I think, probably with my sister, who is the person who I, like, most often talk about romance novels with, or did. Not anymore, Jen. But, like, um, and I was si- I was sitting with someone. I can't remember who. And my and Eric was there. And I <laughs> said, and we were talking, and we were talking about Devil's Pride, and we were talking about Devil, and we were talking about blah, 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 blah. And then he goes, and, and, like, after an what feels now, like, in hindsight, like, it was, like, an hour-long conversation. Eric went, right. Hang on a second. <laughs> this guy's name is Devil Sinster? And I was like, yeah, isn't that great? <laughs> and he was like, Devil Sinister. And I was like, oh, it never occurred to me. <laughs> I remember reading this book and literally having a like, okay, so clearly it's supposed to be sinister, but am I really supposed to be saying it that way? Oh, no, I read these books for a fucking decade. It never <laughs> occurred to me that I was supposed to make the connection between sinister and sinister. And I like, and it is it. What here is the truth, you guys? I have written fifteen romance novels myself. <laughs> we talk about romance novels a lot around this house. Like I, <laughs> by we, I mean I. Jen, Eric listens obviously to every episode of the podcast. He can name. Two romance heroes now. One of them is Devil Sinster. The other one now is Derek Craven. He cannot <laughs> name a single one of mine. <laughs> and literally, until the podcast started, Devil Sinster was Eric's like, ta- Go like to. anytime, yeah. anytime we talked about any book of mine or anyone else's, if I was stuck on a plot, he'd be like, well, make Devil Sinster do such and such. <laughs> 
What would Devil's Sinister do? <laughs> oh, God. That's amazing. So, I mean, it is a very memorable name. But, like, I also was trying to think, do you think this is the earliest? This is not the earliest instance of, obviously, the hero with a nickname, right? Because you think about, like, Jude Devereaux's The Black Lion, right? Like, all those medievals had, like, you know, the, the white wolf or, like, whatever. <laughs> But this sinister family with devil and scandal oh, and vain and them, Gabriel yeah, right, and sure. Lucifer <laughs> and none of them have the right names. Wait, I want to read that. You can, you go, but I want to read the section of the book that is so nonsense. No, apparently my job is to just giggle during this episode, even though I was the one who picked it. You know, here's here's what I would say uh, about all of that because it was amazing. I I read this series up through the twins. I did not read past Amelia and Amanda's books. Um, I think that this is an example, and and I, I say this with love, right? Like, I think Stephanie Lawrence is giving the readers what they want. Oh, it's so much that. But at the, there's a point at which, like, I as a reader stop wanting the exact same thing from the exact same series, and so I pieced out of reading it. It's really interesting, right? Because I think that, um, that you know, my friend Carrie Ryan writes YA novels and she, and we have talked like we saw, we often plot books together and often she's like, I want to write, you know, I don't know. I guess I could write, um, I don't know what <sighs> fake, like fake identity, right? Like surprise, I'm a Duke. Right. But whatever. She writes zombie novels, but surprise, I'm a zombie. And she's like, but it's so expected. It's so done. Yeah. And I'm like, Here's the thing, though. One, tropes exist for a reason. Like, surprise, I'm a Duke is actually really entertaining and people love it. But also, I think, like, we lose sight of the fact that in some instances, surprise, I'm a Duke is first, right? It's the first time. So when we say, like, looking back, like, I read that whole nickname passage and I just, I literally burst out loud laughing. Like, it was so overt. But at the same time, in 1998, I bet I didn't do that. Of course I didn't. Well, here's the other thing, right? Like, it's, I I had read books before that were tied together, right? Like, you'd get, like, a little series of three I do remember feeling like this idea that these like men were going to tie together this like literal band of brothers is going to tie it together. Um, Looking back, I think this really did feel kind of revolutionary. I'm not sure that I like had a huge. Yeah, I don't know. So I think that that was a big part of it for me. But also the other thing is the idea that a man would instantly fall in love with a heroine and know that she was the one. And she was the one who was like, "Mm, Uh, I'm not sure. Magnificent. Right? Like, I also really remember reading this book and being like, whoa, man, I just read something very new and I like it. And that was the other part about this book, I think. Well, it's interesting, though, because there is, it's uh, like you said, wait, first of all, I want to read this passage. I've been (laughs) promising. Okay. So we're at a ball and Honoria is with Amelia and Amanda. Uh, the sinister girls. And there are two generations of sinsters. There's like the older cousins and the younger cousins. And they're the younger cousins. 
It says, tell me the names of your older male cousins. So overt. So obvious. (laughs) Stephanie's like, I got to get this out. So here's the whole sister series in one. Yeah. Let me like roll this out for you. I was like, here's a like a little hint from how to do a little bit of exposition for your reader on page. How to prep your readers on what books are coming next. So um, Vane is next to Devil, but you but you know him. That can't be his real name. The reply. His real name's Spencer, Amanda whispered, but don't ever call him that. And I'm like, (gasps) Spencer's heroine's going to call him Spencer. It's going to be amazing. (laughs) The one behind Devil is Richard. He's called Scandal. He's (laughs) Devil's brother. We actually find out that Scandal is actually his appropriate name later. But right now we're like, yeah, (laughs) put it in my veins. (laughs) God, yes. And the one behind Vane is his younger brother, Harry, and they call him Demon. No one gets to just be Harry. Oh, God, no. That's right, Amanda nodded. And the one next to Vane is Gabriel. His real name is Rupert. But that's a normal name. Gabriel's a totally normal name. <laughs> but not but normal when you know what his brother's called. <laughs> Lucifer. Lucifer. That's right. He's really Alistair. I mean, I got to give it to her right up front. She's like, I'm going to name two of these motherfuckers devil. You're just going (laughs) to. Right? Because I told Sarah, I want to do an interstitial about heroes named devil because I'm actually, I would like to talk about this. We all have a devil. I want to talk about it. I do. I'm fascinated by it. Like, how do you, how do you know when's the right time to deploy your one shot at devil? Stephanie Lauren's like, I'm going to take devil and Lucifer, bitches. fuck all you all. (laughs) Right here on She's this She's like, page. I write faster than you. I get all the names. I get all the names. So I guess here's what I would say. Let's talk about the setup because um, for romance reasons, Honoria, even though she is fucking loaded, is a finishing governess for... It has been for six years, even though she's 24. And her brother lets her do this. Nobody fucking knows why. Romance reasons. It's fine. Super rich. Super rich. She's so rich. She's eccentric and rich. (laughs) I was like, later on, she's like embroidering. And I was like, bitch, this is what you really would have been doing. Like, what are you doing? I'm a governess. What? You're 24. I don't even understand things, but whatever. (laughs) Jen texted me in the middle of the night about this. And I just replied, romance reasons it's true it's true here's what i will say you know it's funny you weren't you were saying earlier that you didn't think she was trying to do lord of scoundrels i will say this nod to honoria wanting a job i did think was a nod to jessica trent right remember jessica wants to like have a shop and like be yeah, essentially yeah, yeah. be independent and i did think oh i wonder if this is a a nod to that you know it might be because right at this time so 98. I think this is part of why I was so surprised that it came later. Um, Because it does feel like it's of the time, the 93, 94, like, you know, sweet spot. Um, Because also what was happening in 1998 was the Bridgertons were starting, right? Uh, I don't think the first one had come out yet, but Julia Quinn was writing the Bridgertons, right? And... Or right, she was at least just starting to write, and she was sort of writing a really different kind of book. And none of Julie's Julia's heroines really like are job focused. They're very like, especially the Duke and I, right? They're very. Um, she's like basically in like, the ballroom. Yeah. She's mom focused. She's like, my job is to have a baby. Yeah. Honoria doesn't want any of that nonsense. She wants to travel to Africa. Yeah. <laughs> Wolf. Pause. There at least is a moment where she's like, I'm going to the Ivory Coast. And he's like, that's full of slavers. That's not a great idea. Like, at least, like, there was a one sort of Africa's not 
not yeah. for you. Listen, yeah. Don't go colonize further, but thank you. Historicals um, are... Yeah, well, it was a different time, thank God. But yeah, some of that. Well, the other thing I was thinking as in this laundry list of brothers and cousins, in a modern, in a modern historical one that's being written now, I wouldn't expect them all to be straight. Well, there it's funny because there's a moment where it's their wedding night, right? Devil and Honoria are and they're and they're there's a weird moment. There's a weird moment, right? Yes. So okay. So the way I I mean, presumably everybody caught this on the reread, but I'm just gonna name check it because it's weird. So okay, so they go and they bone and they've been boning for a while. And I want to talk about the whole deal, the whole like you can't I I won't bone you until oh, right? until you say which yes, I really right? love because everybody knows I love a sex deal. Anyway, so they're they finally have consummated the marriage. It's been 42 pages, like it's <laughs> magnificent. Everybody's had a starburst, not the candy, the the other kind. Oh, man. So um, we also have to talk about that too, the like kind of wild vocabulary. But anyway, um, so there, and then like devil gets up and he goes and he like pours himself a glass of wine and he's like kind of on the balcony, but there's like a gossamer curtain blowing. Sure, of course. And then Honoria comes over and is like, what are you doing? And he's like drinking this wine. And then she... Let's make out some more. And then he, he then it, the POV switches to the garden. Yes. Where six of his cousins are just standing in the dark. <laughs> Watching. Just hanging out in the dark. Like, oh, look, they're making out up there. Well, and then, so then there's like, he, then devil toasts them through the curtain. Honoria toasts them through the curtain. And then they make out through the curtain. Wait, oh, are we misreading? Am I misreading? No, I wonder if they changed it. You have like an old paperback? Wait, they don't toast in yours? Uh, they toast each other in mine. Oh, no, there's a toast. Maybe I'm misreading it. I read it as they toast through the curtain. Well, I was like, why would they be toasting each other? (laughs) Uh, because we just fucked it. It was amazing. Um, (laughs) um, let's see. Now we're, see, now we have to go back to the text. Yeah, no, me too. Well, here's the thing. I remember this because I always remember being really grossed out by a particular turn of phrase in that scene, mm. which is they describe the cousins as having eyes on stalks. And I was like, ew. Oh, yeah, eyes out on stalks. My mom says that, too. It it means um, extremely tired. I mean, I get what it means, but I was like, <laughs> yeah, that's funny. That's oh, interesting. He No, he turns it. He turned and raised his glass in salute to her. Oh, it does it say to her? Well, it just says six men saw devil turn and raise his glass in salute. All right. This is a did did a Derek Creighton yeah. fuck the prostitute or not moment. Because <laughs> I'm pretty sure they're toasting the men in the garden. <laughs> oh, see, I was like, but yeah, I was like, I was like, Whew. and then I was like, holy crap, what's happening? And then, but to go back to your point about not everybody being straight, it yeah. says five of the men responded to the kiss. And one doesn't. Charles is, right? They don't really know he's there. I mean, so it's like then this really interesting scene when you first read it. It's a weird POV, like twisty-turny POV. Well, you first read it and you think they're all together. But then Mm. it's clear that Charles had been somewhere else and then they, like, run into him. Yeah. Somewhere else in the garden or whatever. But the whole scene is, like, real wild. (laughs) It's real wild. And I did, in that moment, I was like, wait a second. Like, is somebody 
is somebody is one of the six gay. And then I was like, surely not. It's 1998. No one was. Well, gay. right. Exactly. And honestly, if if Charles had been gay, it would have been. Well, that would be a problem. We wouldn't be reading this book in old historicals or in old romances. Sometimes gay characters are demonized. That's what I mean. Yeah, we wouldn't read it. Right. I see what you mean. Yeah. Yeah. It'd we'd be like, woof, that was terrible. Charles instead is just obsessed with the uh, the Butterworth family. <laughs> Interestingly, the whole Charles plot line is really interesting to me because it's almost like so. There, this goes back to your so. One of the things that I said to Jen as we were as we were like I texted her is like basically nothing happens in this book. Like there is a sort of overarching who killed Tolly, who is trying to kill. Who's trying to kill Devil, right? Which is fine. Like, it's sort of, it's it's happily pushing the plot. It's plot, right? Right. It's happily pushing the story along. Like, we are moving toward a whodunit. But at no point is Stephanie Lawrence like, I'm going to make this a real mystery. I Yeah, that's the other thing. Like, I don't remember my first time reading it, so I feel like I always knew it was Charles. But reading it this time, I'm like, it's so obviously Charles. No, it's obviously Charles. Her, it's like Vanna White tit signage to Charles. There's some show or some movie. I feel like it's, oh, it, recently in, in Brooklyn Nine-Nine, there was like a moment where it was like a who stole the cocaine from the, like, whatever, evidence room. <laughs> and it was like somebody was so obvious in a conversation that she walked away and everyone was like, it was definitely her. Like, she's yeah. definitely the one. <laughs> she's, I mean, that's how it is here, right? Well, when Charles is like, I hope you don't live to regret marrying <laughs> devil. And I'm like, well, this guy's clearly the one. <laughs> But, like, do I care? Not at all. No, but here's why it's interesting, and here's why I think ultimately it works. And I think it's, like, a really good example of how a secondary side plot is really about character development. One of my favorite things in this book is, um, it's real dumb, but I liked it, is at the beginning where she doesn't actually know who the Duke is. Like, right? Everyone talks yep. about him as the Duke or his grace, but she doesn't know his <laughs> title. She's trying to figure and it she's out. she's trying to figure it out, <laughs> but she can't figure it out because it's, it's it should and just be. And she doesn't be... want to seem stupid. Right. And exactly, right? And And then there's this part where she says, and it's like a really, like, fascinating where uh, the the quote, right, is her saying something essentially like along the lines of um, it It wasn't her job as a well-bred lady. It's very passive in its structure, right? So wait, let me, let me bring this up because I sent it to Kate. As a well-bred lady, it wasn't her place to demand his name. It was his duty to make himself known to her. So even though she has, like, broken the rules of society in some ways by being a governess and not coming out and not being married, she is very much, like, a follower of those rules. Mm -hmm. Contrast this at the end to when they're, like, fighting about the fact that she's convinced someone wants to kill Devil. And she says, I won't allow it. I forbid it. You're mine. They can't have you. And so the thing about this dumb plot is... It's really a plot about her... Evolving. Evolving. And and I... That's the part that I really feel like... No wonder I like this book so much, yep. right? I mean, no it's wonder. so... But it's so interesting because it really is, like, how many times on this podcast have I said or have you said, like, it maps. The books map to, like, to women 
finding their voice and finding power in the world, right? Always. That is always the case, particularly when you are working with an alpha. We, I mean, go back, listen to our alpha episode if you've, if this is the first time you've heard me say this. Um, And so, but what's interesting about this is that Honoria, for the entire, until 85% of the way through the book, is sitting at home. Devil's out, devil's trying to find the murderer, devil's trying to, like, devil and all his cousins are, like, gadding about, like, getting getting like almost killed everywhere and she's sitting at home waiting for him to come back safe yeah and worrying because she's like they want you it wasn't tolly it was you right and no one is listening to her and there's that moment and so ultimately what's interesting is on the reread i got to a point about and i looked at the i looked at the percentages cuz i was like it is 78% of the way through this book and i'm fucking tired of this bitch sitting, yeah, sitting at, at home. home. I need her to go and do a thing. And it's interesting because I do think that this is a marker of modern historicals versus, or many modern historicals versus older historicals, right? How long would they wait? <laughs> a Sarah McLean heroine does not wait 78% of the way no, through the book to take action. Wait. 7.8%, right? It's take action on page one. I have all these sticky notes on my wall that are, like, supposed to remind me how to write. Can you see what that Heroine says? is always proactive. That's right. Yeah. And, like, here's the thing. Honoria is proactive. Like, she is. She, she has goals. She has dreams. She knows what she wants at the beginning of this book. She resists this idea of, like, being the wife who sits home. And then suddenly she's the wife who sits home before she even acknowledges, like, before she even says, like, yes, I want to be your wife. She is forced into this position of being the wife who sits home. Oh, well, and of being the wife who's, you know, deciding they need scones at the funeral. And And he's like, no, I'm not going to give you any of what you want. She asks him to fuck her like 83 times. And he's like, I'm not doing it until you promise me you will be the wife who stays home. You will be the wife who has children. You will be the wife who you will be my wife. And you have to decide that before I give you any of the things that you want. He's holding her hostage. And then she finally is like, oh my God, like I want him. Like I want, yes. Okay, fine. Yes, fine. And then She's like, no, wait a second. I said I would be your wife, but I didn't say I'd stay home. Right, right. And like, it's really, what's interesting is it feels like the the mystery in the book is how Honoria is going to both marry devil and retain her independence and her identity. In that way, his deciding, uh, literally in the first chapter, that this is the woman for me. And, like, there's a lot of really, I know they shouldn't laugh, but a lot of really funny lines where he's basically, you know, she's like, I'm not some simpering miss. And he's like, you dummy, that's what makes you more attractive to me. Right? Like, all of the ways in which he's sort of, like, uh, you know, domineering and dictatorial. And and, and she doesn't take it ever. And she, and she doesn't take it ever. And so even though she's sort of parked, right, with him and with his mother kind of watching over them, it's also really clear that she's not going to 
kind of put up with him. And one of my favorite scenes I've read and reread a bunch of times, and it was really interesting to like reread the whole thing again, was the scene where she realizes he's paid for her bill at the Modiste. Mm-hmm. Right? And she comes in and she is like, what the fuck are you doing? And he's like, I didn't actually think you'd have the nerve to ask me about it. Right? And they have this huge blowout fight where she is so furious about it. Right. You should have let me pay for this. I have the money. It's like, what are you doing? And, you know, and he's like, you're just throwing a tantrum. You can't send the clothes back. They're just going to send the back here. They've been paid for. Like, you can't do this. And it's really interesting because I hadn't reread that part. Um, the part I always reread is then the part where he admits. She's like, what, were you pretending to be my husband? And he's like, practicing. I was practicing. I love it. I love it too, but I had forgotten that this like sort of fight unspools over like kind of two scenes, right? Like the first one is just them going at each other. And then the second one is when he says like practicing. And it's like a moment where you see that he's like, I just am ready to like move forward with our lives. I know where this is going to end up. There's no other way. We were caught alone in the cottage with like... I wasn't dressed. This is happening. And it's going to be a great match for us. And she's the one who's, like, coming to terms with it. But she is given that place, right? Like, you know, she's, her brother's like, you can't force her. Yep. And I feel like that's the part that, to me, ends up being really interesting. But, yeah, that whole when he's, like, practicing. I wasn't pretending. I was practicing. He's so cute. I know. I love him. But what's interesting, so one of the things that I love, I love that right up front when he's like, we're going to get married. And she's like, no, we're not. I have plans. Right? I have plans. And she's like, I have plans. Like, done. Like, we are not doing this. I don't, I don't care. I don't care that you ruined me. We're not doing this. And he's like, um, and he says, you'll just have to do with becoming a sinster. No one has ever suggested it's a mundane experience. <laughs> right. Absolutely. And I, really love that because it's right there. Like it's a giant blinking signpost, like at the very start of the book that says, ultimately Honoria isn't going to ever be able to be the wife that like everyone thinks that she thinks she has to be right. Devil never really asks her except for don't get yourself killed. Right. Um, but there's, it's right there from the start. Like, Honoria is going to become a sinster and like, then she's going to become part of this crazy crew and it's going to be okay. And that's such a huge part also of her evolution because her family died in this terrible carriage accident that she and her brother witnessed. Her grandfather is just like a real jerk because, you know, his mother didn't marry, right? Someone of the right like the, you know, she's, and meanwhile, they still have plenty of money, which I can't quite figure out, but whatever. It doesn't matter. Romance reasons. Romance reasons. And, but I think the thing too, is like her evolution to realizing that like family doesn't have to be like, she loves her brother. Right. But they're also tied together by tragedy, right? They've seen this thing together. And so this idea that family could be like the Sinsters as opposed to like the Ants through the Weatherbees yeah. is also a revelation for her. And she realizes and loves being with them. And that's like another really great part of this that I don't think I had paid enough attention to is sometimes I forget that the band of brothers, like we're really talking about family. Yeah. And, and 
to a woman who lost her family and is afraid of family in some ways, just how unbelievably appealing that would be to her. Yes, absolutely. Can we talk about sex? <laughs> Please, let's. Stephanie Lawrence writes the longest sex scenes <laughs> in romance. I had sort of forgotten. I was like, they are. Shit. I mean, th- there's a running joke, like, with me and my my writer friends who, like, because I, I think I may have talked about this on the podcast, too, but, like, when I write sex scenes, it often takes me, like, it could take me a day to write 20 pages of, act of like, book, yeah. but it takes me six days to write 20 pages of sex because it just takes so long, so long for yeah. me to write it, right? Like, because it feels like every word has to be thought thought through and, like, what's happening and what are we trying to do with this sex scene and whatever, and the reality is. That sometimes you end up writing long sex scenes, but I have never cleared 30 pages. (laughs) And I was like, come on, they can't be that long. And I was like, oh. (laughs) And here's the crazy thing. Yes, they are. They're actually not that sexy. Like, they're sexy, but they're, like, they're cerebral. Well, mm, now I'm like, let's talk about semicolons. Okay, so here's here's what I would say to that. See? So sexy. I know. I I have a couple thoughts about it. One is, so... Kate was, like, telling us that we have to go back and, like, make sure we talk about, like, his, like, velvet-covered oh, yeah. sheets or whatever. Yeah, right? I have a, I have a quote. I don't have the velvet quote, but I have another quote that I marked. First of all, he's so elementally male. He's so silky smooth. <laughs> and then she talks about peach silk. What? He uses, she uses elementally male, like, six times in this book. It's, it's weird. Anyway, okay, so here it is. She touched the smoothly rounded head. It was akin to stroking hot steel through the finest peach silk. And I was like, why peach? Why? I'm so confused. Also, silk is shiny, so I don't know. (laughs) So confusing. Here's what I will say, though. I think that what this book is doing, or and maybe it's like this era, maybe it's this like couple of years at the end of the 90s, seems to be really bridging the gap between full euphemism sex scenes where it was a cave, it was a cave and a member and a shaft to what we have now, which is everything is called what it's called. Yeah. And now we're just disagreeing about whether or not, you know, it should be cock or dick or whatever. So part of it, I think, is it's really interesting to see a book that sort of is um, like right in the middle of that, right? Like you can see that it's like in the changeover. And it feels like one of the ways to get at things being more sexy at the time was about a more full description. Yeah. Like longer, like a longer scene was going to yeah. be read as hotter. Yeah. As opposed to the like, so little foreplay, we get into bed, uh, you know. Starburst. Like, the Starburst, says it, right? <laughs> right? Like, I, you know, like how many, t- they come back to life. Like they really are hitting that like people pass a cold after a great <laughs> orgasm in these, in these books, which God bless you. And I think that that's the part that those sex scenes then feel really fascinating because I feel like that's what it's trying to do, right? I can't really use the words I want to use, so I'm just going to really hammer home the entire experience. Yeah. I mean, this, as I said, uh, as I said to you, I really feel like 
it's re- it's really fascinating because it feels like this book has all the hits, right? Oh yeah, <laughs> it has like it's like has the old school hits of like, um, it's never gonna fit. Oh yeah, sure. Which I am super <laughs> trash for. Like I'm sorry. You know what? Nobody wants to face down a penis that looks like it's definitely not gonna fit. Like but a the, baby's like, arm. But any like a baby's arm. But the reality is, like, every fucking time I read in an old school romance, that's never going to fit. I'm like, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) It's never going to (laughs) fit. Especially because the answer is always, like, it'll fit. It's fine. Yeah. It's going to be fine. Right? Yes. But it also has the hymen in the wrong place. I think Mm. we've talked about how I would like to set up a website called (laughs) whereisthehymen.com. Like, the hymen is... PSA, everyone, the hymen is not up in there. And you don't have to bust through it like the Kool-Aid man. Oh, yeah. Jen likes to say. This is, a, come on, you guys. Like, people act like you have to take a battering ram to that thing. Like, especially, no. they're like, they went off and fought at Waterloo, but somehow the hymen is going to be this thing that they're really like, Ooh. so much work to get through this thing. Whoa. Oh, my God. Are we up to so, the task? So, there's a lot of, like, that old school, like, um, wait, what is that? What is that line? Um, in Let Me Clear My Throat when he's like, that's that old school rap with that new school hit. <laughs> yes. Oh, God. <laughs> Perfect. So, yes. So it's like that. And, um, but then at the same time, like, it's, it is really, like, intense. And yeah. there's a lot of, like, there's a lot of very clear, at one point, like, it's very, there's like a graphic cunnilingus scene, which is her wedding night gift. She doesn't get it before then. Sure. But that night that she night. gets it. And so, um, you know, God bless Stephanie Lawrence because I do think that she changed the game when it comes to putting sex on the page. Like she is, she is fearless in terms of, because at the time we weren't seeing, you know, I talked, we talked about this when we talked about Indigo, but I talked to Beverly Jenkins about that Indigo sex scene, which is long. Yeah. And she was like, oh, we were all writing long then, like, you know, and she was like, I meant Stephanie. (laughs) And because I feel like, you know, in those early, like, in the sort of early 90s, we were starting to see longer sex scenes that were slightly more graphic. But then Stephanie came, like, busting through like a hymen. And, like, here we are. We're in, like, 30-page sex scenes now. Also, the vocabulary in these sex scenes is intense and the and the grammar and i know that we're i was really impressed when i read this right and 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 i know that we're like talking about sex scenes but it's like all of it so i think she's man i don't think i've ever i did not certainly ever pay attention to it before this is a woman who really is a fan in a big bad way of a semicolon But she's using them correctly and she uses them a lot. But here's what I think in in the sex scenes in particular. Um, But in all of them, I think that they're really about tying, like feeling, either feelings and thoughts or feelings and action together. So what we get is this sense of like at the beginning, right, of the sentence, something happens and then you get a semicolon and then you get like an emotional response and what it really does for me as the reader is it's like this sense that they are um, 
like everything is tied to like mentally, like, how's this working? What's going on? How do I feel about it? And it creates this like really incredible sense of intimacy with, for us as readers, with them as characters, but also for like the way that they are processing, like, how do I feel versus how do I think? How do I feel versus like, versus what's happening. And in the sex scenes, it's really like, some of it is like shock and awe, right? She's like, oh my God, what's happening? <laughs> right. Mm-hmm. But all, and, and for him, it's like the, the sense of him losing control. I'm doing things I've done before with other women, but now it feels different. Uh, trash for it. I'm trash, trash for, it. for it. And I think that it's, it's, but I also think like, I want to see more, more of it too, right? I want to see more things where I really get the sense that oh, sex is not it, like there's nothing mechanical about this sex. It's so emotional. It's so intimate. It's so like really. I mean, that's why it's thirty pages, right? They're not just doing it. Something else is happening at the same time. Yeah, agreed. But also, I think like she doesn't shy away from just. I mean. For all the discussion of, like, don't overdo with the thesaurus. I mean, Stephanie Lawrence has never met an adverb she doesn't love, right? At one point, I, I sent this to you, but at one point I was like, is she, at one point he kisses her, kisses her <laughs> rapaciously. And I was like, it, literally, I am yeah. a professional writer. And I was like, I need to look up rapaciously because I'm pretty sure I know what this means. <laughs> and like, it is exactly what it, it is exactly what it sounds like. But like, yeah. she is like, you are going to sink into this world that I have built and you are going to believe yeah. that, like, when Devil Sinster kisses someone, they think it's rapacious. And you're like, I don't know what that word means, but I believe it. <laughs> like, <laughs> I, and that's it. I think that's why I was like, the fact that there's a lot of, like, grammatical complexity, a lot of a lot of really intense vocabulary. I mean, this is why you and I both, like, nailed our SATs. Oh, for sure. But also this sense that, Again, like it really adds to the the sense that characters with a rich and interesting internal monologue, mm-hmm. right, which is what this is, yes, feel more complicated and interesting to me as a reader. Yes, but also there is such a real sense of one. I think Stephanie Lawrence has to be on the list. If you were to make a list of the people who write romance or who wrote romance who um, establish sex on the page. As and desire on the page, and like intent, the intensity of that desire on the page, without making it laughable or making it um, pornographic or making it any like there are any number of things that we sort of talk about sex on the page as when we say pejorative things about sex on the page, that's what we're talking about. Right. And in this particular case, Stephanie Lawrence leans into the book being sexy and romantic and full of like desire and want and need and like Mm -hmm. primitive need, right? Like there's a primalness to the sexiness of this book. And she doesn't ever, she never pulls the, intellectual punch in the sense that like she's saying you can both want to bone and want it intellectual like and be like articulate and well-spoken and perfect about it like art in a you can use fancy grammar and also want to bone (laughs) there it is 
it is both literary and sexy, and you can have both at the same time, and don't you ever be ashamed of it. And that is the tits. Yeah, no. <laughs> it is. It, it although the she see because she's in the the zone, she of course never used tits, they're globes. <laughs> but also, can we talk about the I I don't want to leave this this conversation without talking about the fact that Devil Sinister says there I want to talk about mine in this book because I think this is a primordial text in the context of the hero is an alpha and says, mine, 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 right? There's that great moment where she's like, are you sure that I'm the right wife for you? And he just looks her dead in the eye and is like, you're mine. And that's it. Done, that's right? It. But then it has the flip, which you talked about earlier, where Honoria says, like, you're mine. You're right? mine. We are each other's. And there is the level of parity and partnership in this book that is coded from the start, from the moment the devil decides, right? Like, she's mine, right? Mm-hmm. There's that alpha. It, it scratches every alpha itch, right? Like, she's mine. I want her. I'm going to protect her. I'm going to keep her. Like, I want to bone her. I want to do all these things, right? Yeah. But I'm hers, too. I want to talk to one of the things that's, like, really interesting about this book that I also liked is the role of, like, sort of the elder generation of women in helping her figure that out. Mm. So she's at this ball, and she's kind of, like, hemming and hawing, and and this lady, Obledstone, I think, is basically like, what? What's what are you doing here? Right? What's going on? And she and it's very again very similar to Genevieve in Lord of Scoundrels, where she's like, "You're a fool. Like make this work." I think I don't want to. I want to make sure I'm like not misquoting, and it's not Lord of Scoundrels, but I'm pretty sure where it's kind of like, "No, look, you've you've got this one. You're just gonna have to like make it happen. This is the right match for you. You are the right match for him." Mm-hmm. And and you know you were like essentially like raised to take this position. Like this is your this is exactly where you're supposed to be. Yes. And I found all of that also to be really um I really liked it because I felt like it's this here's a, a woman without a mother. Yes. And so to have and she's essentially by choice removed herself from from this life, right? She's like, I don't want that life because I don't want to get married and have kids. I'm afraid of it. So she never really had a chance to be with these women and to hear them like care for her this in this way. Yes. And I found that, you know, we've talked about like female friendship, but we haven't really talked about like women as mentors. Mm-hmm. And in these old historicals, I think you see that, right? Like you see this older kind of wiser generation of women coming in and saying like, you don't know what I know, but listen to me. And that women listen to each other. And I found that again on the reread to feel like really moving, right? Like really moving. I felt the same way. Lady Osbaldistone. Is that her name? I was like, yeah. I don't know how. I know That's how it is. Yeah. It's a lot. Spelled. (laughs) But um, it's. She's in every one of these sinister books, right? Yeah, she's I a think big so. cane. She cracks it over people's heads, like it's like a thing. And um, and I was thinking, I had this really interesting thought about how these recurring older women characters in romance, the role they play, and um, and then I was sort of thinking, like, you know, well, where who would I put into this bucket? 
and um and at first I was like, oh well, there's a there's Lady Whistledown right in mm-hmm. in in Bridgerton's, although she's not ultimately when she's revealed she's not an older woman um but there's you know lady always baldestone here in stephanie lawrence there's nicks yeah right like there are over the course of the sort of big historical series there are a lot of these mentor characters we should do an interstitial that talks about like which ones you know what what they do but I think maybe we just did it. Maybe you just did it. But um, but I do think that this is really interesting. I also think they are a placeholder for the reader. Yes. And they are a placeholder for the author in many time, in many cases. We, the readers and me, the author, we see what you should do right here. Because we can see into him in a way you can't. It's also a really good authorial trick, one that I use a lot, even though I don't typically write this exact character. But in in a lot of my books, there is a character who is like a Greek chorus. Yeah. And that character's job is to say to readers when they have a question, right? Like when readers are like, mm-hmm. I don't understand. Why doesn't he just talk to her? Or why doesn't such and such just happen? Like this obvious next step. Here's why. That character is there to say, hey, reader, you're not alone. Like, we are all feeling this way, you know, but here's, the, here's why it's a really good trick. Yeah. Um, from a, it's a cheat, right? Because it ends up being the way that you tell readers, like, not just yet. I need to push the story forward first. So now if we could talk about something that I think it, obviously people do it. So it must work for a lot of readers and it doesn't really work for me. And I'm going to tell you why, <laughs> which is, so I, I was poking around. I actually haven't, I stopped reading Stephanie Lawrence after the twins books. I have, I never finished the series and I haven't read anything new by her in a long time. It's ongoing. This instru- and I mean, it, this yeah. is where, so apparently this woman, Lady Stone, whatever, um, mm-hmm. There are books about her as a young woman. They're, mm-hmm. Like, she essentially gets her own books. And I... I haven't read those. I, and I will tell you, I, again, it must work. People must like them because she's selling them, right? You don't write books that don't sell, and you don't keep writing sinister books forever. I get a little... Um, I get... I'm sad. She's a, she's a widow here. I don't want to go back and read her love story because in my for me as a reader, all these people just live forever. I agree. And once you start making books about the generation before and the generation after, you are you're sort of telling me <laughs> Devil Sidster and Honoria don't live forever. Hey, wait, what? Yeah. And I don't I don't like that. And I also um I feel like I and I don't know. I'm 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 only speaking as a reader. I don't, I, I like to see authors grow and change. And I know that is like a real statement of privilege. I do. I'm sorry. And I know that and you're just making a face and I get it. I'm not, I'm not making face, but I'm saying like, it's, it must be terrifically hard, oh, right? Oh, Jennifer, you're going to get me in trouble. No, don't, no, let's, it's, it's just a matter of like, sometimes things are really popular. Yeah. And readers want what readers want. Yep. What I will say is it is very clear that a lot of writers, you can see it in the text. Yeah. When a writer is done with a series, but they're still writing it because the readers want it. And I'm not, this is actually, and this is very true. I am not necessarily saying that about the Sinsters because I haven't read the later books. So um, I am not, and I like, but there are death. I I have an author in my head and I can think, I know that like 
in the text, it's clear she doesn't want to do it anymore. And I think that's a real bummer. But I also appreciate that, like, there is a fear in leaving behind, especially, look, Mm -hmm. look at Cressley. Cressley, they toured her on a bus wrapped in Lothair's face. And that was book 16 or whatever, right? Like, so when you're talking about an author who's, like, has a series that is so immensely popular— Cressley's not phoning it in. The last uh, Immortals After Dark book was one of my very favorites. So I don't know if she's bored or not. She doesn't seem to be. But my point is that, like, I can totally see why you would not want to leave that behind. Right. It's a job. It's your security and safety. Like, I I get all that. Brass tacks, you guys. And I'm saying this to Jen as a, like, I'm looking Jen in the face. As a reader, Jen, your job is to take the risk on the next series. And a lot of readers don't. Yeah. Right? And a lot of readers are like, oh, like I've read Sarah McLean's Casino series. That's what I wanted. I've never tried any of other series. And it's like, well, I mean, I could have written casino books for 20 years. And some people would have been happy. I wouldn't have been happy. You know, we Jen and I talk all the time about, like, we really like it when someone's hunting for a big game, when someone's trying something new. But if you talk to writers who've been around for a long time, especially the ones who've written huge series, they'll tell you straight up, like, readers don't want something new. Well, and I feel like, so you know the the phrase fan service. Do you know what that means? Of course. So I feel like it's really interesting, and um, I'm going to talk about Veronica Mars for a minute. Which is, um, if have you ever watched that TV show? It was like an old. Uh, yeah. yeah. That TV show, show got me through midnight breastfeeding for Ugh. five months. So, yeah, Kelly and I really were big fans of, of the TV show. And then it was sort of like, we're going to crowdsource to make this movie. And that movie was fan service, which it needed to be because guess who paid for it? We did. Exactly. <laughs> and then this last season came out and I didn't watch it. Now, I'm not a big watcher anyway, but if there was anything I was going to watch, it should have been Veronica Mars. But I am just like the type of person who's just like, you know what? I just need to let that go. Yeah. It's so hard for me. And I feel like it's like, it's not because I don't want characters to grow and change. TV is, I think, harder for me in general in that way, right? Like, but in this case with books and with authors, and we've been talking about my whole new obsession with this idea of like an imperial period, mm-hmm. right? Which is like in pop music, your imperial period is when you're essentially at like the height of your powers. And you're Madonna after the 80s, right? And you get to then say, I am, like, at this moment, I'm self-directed. I have the power. There's a great article I can put in show notes about it to essentially, like, now do what I want. Yeah. And I'm really interested in those books, but I also realize that in genre fiction, that's asking a lot. It is. I mean, I think about... um You know, Julia Quinn stopped writing the Bridgertons and she wrote this duology that I have always really admired. The first, I forget, it's like the lost, the two of them together are called the Lost Dukes of Wyndham. And it's a duology that where um, there's, there are twins and they are separated at birth or like they're separated and one is raised as the Duke, but it turns out he's not in fact the Duke. Like he wasn't the firstborn, right? And they figure it out over the course of the first book. And then she writes, the second book and the second book is from the other character's point of view and there are overarching overlapping scenes 
right? So it's, you're in the POV of the hero of the first book in the first book, and then you're in the POV of the second, the other hero in the second book. So like, and not every scene is the same, but like there are moments where the two characters are in the same scene and they're both powerful and they're written along the same like time frame. I think this is big game. She did something no one else has ever done. She released a duology. It was true. Like, I think it is truly inspired the way she did it. And I don't think she would be, I don't think she would have a problem with me saying like that those books did not sell as well. They are not reviewed as well. And I think part of the reason why is because everyone was like, I want more Bridgertons. And now they get a Shonda Rhimes show. So great job, everyone. But the, (laughs) um, but like, Right. That's hard. It's hard. And look, the reality is, is the Sinsters got me through 9-11. The Sinsters got me through a time. And like, I'm deeply grateful to Stephanie Lawrence for these (laughs) crazy nicknamed dudes. Yeah. They got me through 9-11 too. I was actually looking like this was what I was reading in 2001. Right. And I really am so delighted. I'm so incredibly grateful to her. I have had the chance to meet Stephanie one time. I was a baby, baby, baby author. We're on a panel together. I was so starstruck. Yeah. Um, And I said like, one sentence to her that I think was probably like, thank you so much for (laughs) everything. You're amazing. So yeah. Thank you so much for everything. Stephanie Lawrence. You're amazing. Um, now what are we reading next? Well, I think it's one of your books, Sarah, but also (gasps) one of my books. Yeah. So we're doing Susan Elizabeth Phillips, right? Yeah. Um, do you, so we're going to do nobody's baby, but mine, which is my, is that your pick too? Um, I think I probably had picked Heaven, Texas, but that oh, would have been boy. like a close second. That, like, there's like a, a real tight group there. I really like Ain't She Sweet, too. I feel like we'll talk about a lot of We'll Susan's talk about a lot of them, this. sure. Um, I do know Susan well enough to text her, so we'll be asking her. I'll, and if we have any questions, we can ask her before we do it. But two weeks from now, nobody's baby but mine. Also, stay tuned, you guys. We're we're working on, Jen and I are working on like a quarantine, special quarantine edition of yes. Fate of Mates for a few weeks so um stay tuned we'll we'll definitely have more for you on that do not forget to leave us voicemails we are running out of voicemails yeah um so uh actually we're i haven't checked the voicemail box in a while but uh, we're running out of voicemails ish (laughs) um our number is four six four six four five zero three seven six six um you can find pins from best friend kelly at jenreadsromance.com mm. uh you can find sarah mclean romance t-shirts from at jordan d-e-n-e.com jordan Denay. wait i have a story to tell you i'm sorry i know we're really over can i yeah. tell you before you say that eric sure. Moore's our producer um i wore my gracefully furious t-shirt is that the one you sent me right Oh no, it said read, read romance, romance fight, fight the pair, right? And Daryl's like, what's that t-shirt? And I was like, what do you mean? He's like, have I ever seen that before? I was like, no, because <laughs> I just got it. And he's like, are you kidding me? Do you wear that like out in the world? Hey, hey, Daryl. I know, he's the worst. I was reading it, so I go to Love Sweet Arrow, and he's like, well, what do people think? And I was like, well, actually, 
I was like, three people said, oh, I almost wore mine today. And he's like, I guess that makes sense. You wear it with your people. And I was like, that's exactly right. Exactly, Daryl. I'm going to get him one now. I'm sending Daryl a Rakes Rogue Scoundrels and Bastards <gasps> t-shirt. Yes. <laughs> I want pictures. Um, anyway, so you can get all that gear everywhere. Support local businesses online, everyone. Yeah. We love Love Sweet Arrow, a romance-friendly bookstore in Chicago. We love Word, which is a romance-friendly bookstore uh, here in in Brooklyn. And 57 um, Street Books. 57 Street Books. They're amazing. All of these bookstores are doing online orders. Some of them have avo- have stopped, have waived shipping fees during yeah. this, um, you know, pandemic. And uh, Love Sweet Arrow is doing secret boxes where, like, Super you can fun. just pay a certain amount of money and they'll just mail you a book. Surprise. <laughs> um, I think this is great. In fact, I'm planning to order one today. Stay safe, everyone. Watch your hands. Don't touch your face holes. Hi, this is Sue from Minneapolis, Arctic Sue, as you know me on Twitter. I'm the person that posted the quote from Bernard from Westworld. I guess people like to read about the things that they want the most and experience the least. I was late to the romance party. I didn't start reading romances until about five years ago. I've always been an avid reader. I read history, period. So virtually nothing else. But I was first blooded by Stephanie Lawrence and the Sinster family, and I was off and running. However, true addiction came with Lisa Klaipas in the Wolfmonger series. Devil in Winter has always been my favorite book. I've probably read the series 25 times. Um, but over and over again, I love Sarah's Rules of Scoundrels. And I love Eloisa James Wild family. So keep it up. I listen with a tablet next to your podcast. And I always try and read whatever you're reading. Thanks a lot. Talk to you later.